0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest in our series of criminal cases. As the year 2000 approached, many apocalyptical cults were preparing for their journey to another dimension. During their preparation for the much-awaited event between October 1994 and March 1997, 74 people lost their lives across two different continents, Europe and North America. All the victims died in a similar manner they were burned in fire and placed in a circle formation. The victims were Swiss, Canadian, and French. The only thing that they had in common was that they all belonged to a cult called Order of the Solar Temple. enforcement agencies across the three countries assumed this to be the beginning of a long and challenging investigation, everyone else believed that this was a case of mass suicide. During their unusual investigation of parallel and unknown dimensions, police discovered the cohort functioning of a powerful organization with esoteric and suicidal tendencies, a lucrative business led by two powerful gurus, Joseph D. Mambro, a former provincial jeweler, and Luc Cherey, a Belgian homeopathic doctor, two aliases with dubious backgrounds who turned into gods overnight in the eyes of their disciples. The order of the solar temple remains to this day one of the greatest cases of sectarian conflicts that took place at the end of the 20th century. The foundation of this organization was a massive scam, which promoted organized crimes, numerous theatricalized ceremonies, and a supposed fantasy trip to the planet, Sirius. They prided themselves as being a non-profit organization and worked for the common good. But how did it all begin? How were the followers recruited? What was really behind the well facade of the two iconic gurus, Jody Mumbro and Luxury? Let's take a step back and trace the origins of this peculiar sect which continues to be talked about even today, 26 years later. October 4. 1994. In the small town of Morin Heights, in Quebec, the fire department from the neighboring village was called to investigate a fire outbreak at one of the town's cottages. When firefighters arrived at the location, it was unfortunately too late to control. The house had burnt down to ashes and crumbled to ruins. The police had been called to assist in conduct an initial investigation. In addition to the significant material loss, they discovered in the rubble five burnt corpses, including that of an infant. For the time being, determining the origin of the fire was the topmost priority. Initially, everything seems to suggest that it was an accidental fire started by a gas tank or a radiator. But what followed was totally unexpected. The next day, October 5, 1994... In the peaceful Salmon region in the Swiss Alps, two cottages had been burned down in circumstances that were identical to those of the previous night in Quebec. In the first house, the Swiss police discovered fifteen charred corpses, plus another ten in another cottage a few meters away. In total, there were twenty five victims. There were more surprises in store for the police because two hours later, About 110 kilometers from Salvin, in the village of Sherry, 23 more bodies were found in a small isolated organic farm that had also coincidentally burst into flames. A particularly strange fact was that the cottage in Sherry was an exact replica of the one in Salvin, except smaller. Once again, there were no survivors. Among the victims found in the cottages in Salvin were two local celebrities, Joseph de Mambro, 70, and Luc Luxury, 46. Dimambro and Jure were not strangers. The first led a jet-set lifestyle, and the second was a brilliant speaker, who was famous all over the world and who needed no introduction in North America. Yet, over the last few months, rumors regarding their actual vocations had begun circulating. They had been implicated in various real estate and check-cashing fraud cases. There were also rumors circulating concerning a particular sect which would be found by the team of Journet and Dimambro. In Canada, where the investigation was progressing at a similar pace, Quebec police made a strange discovery. The owner of the cottage in Morin Heights was none other than Luc Jure. The deceased were either disciples or sympathizers who would never miss any of his lectures. Including Switzerland and Canada, there were a total of 69 victims who perished under the same circumstances one day apart, and all of whom belonged to a sectarian movement, a small esoteric group known as the Order of the Solar Temple. Gradually, the pieces began to fall together, but the various law enforcement agencies had a dilemma before them. Who was the instigator of these three fires? Was it a mass suicide or rather an abominable crime organized by the gurus and their followers on both sides of the Atlantic? In both countries, the announcement of these deaths had the impact of an atomic bomb. The victims' families had a difficult time believing and digesting the story of this cult. Many had only heard the news of the event on the radio or television. They were soon overcome with sadness, anger, and confusion. The victims were all of sound mind. They were families or couples who were united, well-adjusted, visibly carefree and all of them had held good positions in their respective fields such as finance, banking and industry. How could they have fallen into such a trap and dragged their children as well into this madness? New revelations kept surfacing, plunging the investigators deeper into the macabre. In the cottages at Salvan, Cherry and Moran Heights, they found arsenal made of remnants of black and white capes Decorated with a crucifix embroidered in gold, along with infusions, wiles, fire starters, revolvers, sleeping pills, and antidepressants, two swords connected by a network of tangled electric wires were also found in the rubble. A mysterious VHS cassette, the contents of which were spine-tingling, were also found. The first images showed a dining room with a red wall, most likely of the cottage in Salvin. Several people were gathered around the table taking part with great pomp in what looks like the last supper of a group that was condemned. The last meal shared together by the members of the OST, a few moments before their apparent journey to the planet Sirius. Towards the end of the recording, each follower was asked by the person behind the camera to speak in order to share their feelings and to state their final wishes. Everyone seemed incredibly peaceful and spoke in a monotone, detached manner. Not a single trace of any emotion altered their voice or facial expression, and not one seemed upset. The police concluded that to be in such a near vegetative state, the followers must have been drugged from the start by Jody Mambro and Luke Jure. They too were present during the final video sequence, which was divided into short segments, filmed hastily and complete, and chilling silence. The people willingly took their place on the ground and stretched out in the form of a circle and suddenly the cassette went blank. Over the next few days, the local authorities gave an order to tighten the police patrol around the cottages in Salvan and Churry in order to avoid the possibility of others with the same suicidal idea from gathering together. A few weeks later, a document belonging to the official OST members surfaced. It contained a list of surnames, dates of birth, professions of around 500 people, most of whom were located in Geneva, and questioned by the police. While going through the list, the authorities also noted the names of two French police officers and the wife and son of a famous skier, Warnay. On being questioned, former followers appeared to be upset. Their only regret was not having been able to join Jody Mambro and Luc Jure, their spiritual fathers, in time to make the first trip to Sirius together, the place of safety that they had been promised, to flee this very cruel and unfair material world. At the moment, the only hope that they had was a posthumous message left by Dimambro, which attested to waiting for them over there, and that they would definitely rejoin them when they received a new signal, which was expected very soon. The stakes were high. The police wanted to avoid another human tragedy at all costs. They decided to monitor all telephonic conversations. Weeks passed, and there was still nothing new on the horizon, not an echo. No new message, only boring telephone calls without covert language. Just ordinary conversations on the daily grind. The police even ended up believing that some of them eventually had abandoned the idea of this fantastical trip to Sirius. That they could find a semblance of normal life, that they might even have reunited with their families who made them get rid of these ideas. But they were wrong. Thirteen months later, on December 16, 1995, a bombshell dropped. Sixteen more bodies were found in France, in a forest amidst the mountain of Werker, which had a very evocative nickname called the Hole of Hell. Similar to the earlier victims, the body had been burned and placed in a circle. With all of them holding hands, the cars of the victims were located on the edge of the woods, bearing license plates from Geneva or Luxembourg. Sadly, Three children between 6 and 10 years old who were accompanying their parents had also fallen victim. Initially, the investigation continued to support the notion that this was a mass suicide until the first ballistic reports proved the opposite. Among the victims, 12 of them were executed by a 22 long rifle bullet. Quickly, the investigators found a common connection with the events that transpired a year earlier in Switzerland and Quebec. There could no longer be any doubt about it. The victims found in or were just like the others, followers of OST. Joseph de Mombro did in fact tell them to wait for a sign to be able to take their turn, and they did it right under the noses of the authorities. What was the sign and where did it come from? The authorities were quite simply unable to respond. For the police, this was a staggering blow. Their history of telephone monitoring had proven to be a waste of time and had been skillfully bypassed by transit candidates, who found other ways other than the telephone to communicate with each other and to organize their activities. Alain and Jean Warnet, whose mother and wife respectively were among the latest victims, were in shock. The Warnets were not known to the media. Spouses Jean and Edith were ski champions before becoming shrewd business people with lots of success in material possessions. With their three boys, they lived a perfect family life, until the terrible news threw everything into question and swept away every ounce of peace and balance. The initial shock gave way to frustration, then anger, and finally, bewilderment. Jean Warnet seemed to accept this order as painful and dramatic as it was. Elaine, on the other hand, could not let it go. How could his mother, Edith, who had never been a suicidal or depressed woman nor a subject of any behavioral problems, fall into such a trap? How could she so mindlessly have dragged his little brother, Patrick, into this delirium? The media had begun using words like sect and esotericism, invisible world, parallel world, Templars, transit to the planet Sirius, brainwashing, mass suicide, and so many other terms that did not seem to correspond with the image of his mother in his memory. A well-adjusted woman, independent, logical, and with a good head on her shoulders. Not an illuminated mystic to throw herself into the mouth of the lion and swallow the words of the suicidal guru. Elaine had learned that his mother visited the sect in October 1994 just after the announcement of the first massacre in Salvin, Following that, she promised him that she would leave the sect and go back to her former life, and he had taken her at her word. The family had gathered around her to offer as much support as they could, but they feared a relapse. However, as time went by, things got worse. The strong and loving bond that had always existed between them gradually unraveled, and she started to lean more towards his little brother to the point where it tore the family apart. Elaine and his father and another brother were on one side while his mother and Patrick were on the other. The two had already started fighting each other every day for a simple yes or a no. Elaine Warnett remembered the strange phone calls received in the middle of the night and that the sudden departure of Patrick and his mother at the odd hour. They would only return late the next day without a word of explanation for their absence. In view of Jean's increasing anger and his persistent, intrusive questioning about their unusual schedule, Edith and Patrick would build a wall of silence and isolate themselves in a room. Just prior to the tragedy in Vercors, the two sometimes even slept together in the same bed but quickly hushed up whenever someone came into the room unexpectedly. Early in 1996, a mere month after the discovery of the bodies in Vercors. Law enforcement officials from Canada, Switzerland, and France agreed to work together, conjointly in the spirit of strength in numbers. However, the OSD case was unlikely anything else, and the mystery and strangeness that surrounded it made progress difficult since the beginning. The police, who had been used to visible crimes committed by ordinary criminals, which led to traditional and linear investigations, felt as if they had been thrusted into the unknown into a parallel world, surrounded by mystery and shadow they knew absolutely nothing about. Where would they begin searching? What would their search be based on? How could they avert another human tragedy? As for the media, who were always fans of cases like these, had a field day. Everything concerning the event of the OSD case laid the foundation for sensationalism and a macabre of voyeurism. It is important to find out the circumstances that created the Order of the Solar Temple long before it was the subject of so much scrutiny. This is how their story began. The future Order of the Solar Temple began quietly in an isolated village in Belgium at the end of the 1970s. At first, it was simply a small relatively unknown community whose main activity revolved around organization of small meetings where members would debate topics in the news that were of interest to intellectuals. Topics like the origin and fate of humanity at the dawn of the millennium, nuclear war, life in space, atmospheric pollution, and the ozone layer, wars, and new incurable diseases like cancer or AIDS were discussed. In addition, they also provided workshops for things like naturopathy, yoga, botany, organic cooking for a small fee, and were hosted in a friendly and relaxed atmosphere. One of the creative minds behind this small group was a young man named Luxure, a homeopathic doctor who had traveled extensively throughout Asia, where he learned about ancient oriental medicine, alternative medicine, using plants and yoga techniques that could reduce the stress and burnout which plagued industrial societies. Besides this in-depth knowledge, the most striking thing about Luxure to those who met him for the first time was, undeniably, his well-balanced charisma and his ability to capture the attention of his audience simply with the power of his words. Over time, and after many conferences throughout Belgium, as well as Switzerland and the south of France, his reputation grew stronger as he gained new supporters. Word of his reputation even reached Quebec. Le was soon joined by another personality, Joseph de Mambro. A former goldsmith from Nîmes. Demambro, who was Italian but born in Nice, had been a globe trotter before finding himself a seat at the right hand of a successful Belgian homeopath. Jure may have had the power of words and clever turn of phrases to hook his audience. But Demambro, on the other hand, had many years of experience in the field of esotericism. In addition to working as a jeweler, he had been, at various times, a medium, fortune teller and the director at the New Age Centre in the Grenoble area called the Centre for Preparation of the New Age. He revealed that he also possessed the power to see the future and that his reminiscences always proved to be correct. In short, he was a vibrant personality who was becoming increasingly indispensable. Physically not appealing to look at, short-sighted, obese and wearing a wig, Jody Mombro was the very portrait of a provincial playboy. He sported colorful Versace shirts and wore gold rings on each finger. He often made indecent jokes and was quite talkative, which was in complete contrast with Jure, who was more refined and who exercised restraint. By pulling in their talents together, they planned to win over as many new converts as possible. Slowly but surely, these two men who were separated by everything, including age, Dumambra was 23 years older than Jure. Training and social standing found a common ground. They understood that the future was at stake, so they immediately began skillfully weaving the web. Under Joseph de Mambra's rule, the group began increasing isolating themselves and cutting themselves off the outside world. Their gluten-free, vegan cooking workshops, sessions where they learned to meditate and to talk to plants slowly gave way to rituals and discussions about life after death, and questions about the creation of humankind. The participants who had previously been free to come and go as they pleased were now being asked to move around less and not to publicly reveal anything that was said within the four walls. Everything had to remain a secret, and if anyone felt the need to say something, they first had to share it with the two leaders. Jody Marmert decided who stayed and who had to leave. For him, it all depended on auras and vibrations. If a person did not fit the profile that he was looking for in a potential adherent, he immediately gathered the others together and told them, this person or that one, I don't feel it with them. They don't give off the right vibrations. They have to go. And they have to leave our community. And that's precisely what he did, and with everyone's approval. From then on, such manipulations were frequent and took on significant proportions. However, most of these less gullible members of the group started to have doubts about Tim Ambrose's actual powers and one after another began to abandon the group. The small community started losing people one by one and soon Luxure and his associate found themselves alone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices The two future gurus quickly realized that Belgium was not at all the appropriate location for them to realize their aspirations and esoteric ambitions. And so they set their sights on Switzerland, where people were more financially stable and had a greater inclination to embrace new trends. In 1984, a new small community began to form around the two leaders on the La Rochette farm located in Shuri in the township of Freeburg. Here sure, they laid the foundation of what would eventually be the basis of the future sect. Initially called the chivalric order of solar tradition, Jure and Dimambro then acquired a magnificent cottage that they gave a gouty makeover with flashy chandeliers, rococo sofas, leopard carpets, red velour on the walls, esoteric voodoo objects alongside crucifixes and holy water fonts. The goal was to put everything in full view of visitors. Against all odds, the cash donations and checks continued to pour in. The two charlatans rejoiced but never let it show. They were clever enough to understand that all those who came to drink in their words and donate their money still needed a good dose of sensationalism, maybe even a few chills and a scary story to reinforce the mysticalism that had become their stock in trade. All of that required the appropriate atmosphere, meditation and spiritual session were gradually replaced by Masonic ceremonies with initiation rituals and special costumes for the occasion, much like the Templars from the Middle Ages. The first of such ceremonies, which in reality looked more like a Halloween party than an esoteric gathering, proved to be a great success. But for Jody Mombro, who was definitely not a good orator, long speeches were not his strong suit. He lacked the charisma, was not attractive, got easily upset was inarticulate with a monotone voice and had difficulty hiding his southern accent. The speeches that he read were painful for his followers to listen to. He was aware that speaking was not his vocation, so he focused on recruiting new followers, using his powers of persuasion as a former jeweler. Luxury, by contrast, was the complete opposite. First of all, he was much younger and much more eloquent and charismatic than Timombro. Contrary to him, Jure was not content to simply recite a speech that was ready-made for his followers. He used other means to generate publicity, including television, where he started to give interviews. Immediately after that, he also wrote several books, all on the same theme. The Origins of Extraterrestrial Life, Life After Death, Hypnosis, and Near-Death Experiences. He bestowed himself with titles such as International Speaker in Life Sciences, and he became successful through word of mouth. From then on, Luc Jure started hosting successful conferences to audiences of 400 to 600 people. Unlike those who would spout gibberish or try to sweet-talk their audience, the Belgian homeopath gave a reasonable and sensible speech and people ate up what he said. At the end of every session, it was common to hear someone distinctly say what an impressive person this Dr. Jure is, what eloquence, what charisma. Within a short period of time, when she read successful speeches coupled with Dimambra's skill at marketing, they developed a medium-sized business based on personal spiritual growth. Hundreds of people began flocking to the pair and some of them even offered financial aid to help launch the movement. One of the followers even gave two gurus a donation of a million Swiss francs, which is equivalent to today's 620,000 euros, an astronomical sum. Others followed suit by giving away part of their inheritance. And the poorest gave their entire life savings. Within just a few months, the community's coffers were already full. The foundation then changed its name to Golden Way before officially becoming the Order of the Solar Temple, OST, in 1985. In the foundation's charter, which incidentally also approved by Swiss authorities, One of the articles stated the group's mission, which was promoting the reconciliation between science and theology, to allow humanity to take its rightful place in the universe by rediscovering the meaning of real values. Such a mission seemed very well and good. On behalf of the foundation, the two leaders purchased several cottages in Salvan region, known for its upscale ski resorts, and also a few apartments in Geneva and Zurich. In order to restore meaning to his life and to work on his own personal development, Thierry Huguenin, a young dental technician from Baal, began participating in Luxure's conferences, completely captivated by Jure's character and his teachings. Huguenin began closely following the guru's travel schedule in order to not miss any of his lectures. The homeopath, who had taken note of his interest contacted Thierry privately and graciously invited him to become a member of one of the OSD cottages. Consequently, at the end of 1985, Thierry sold his house, quit his job and headed for Geneva, where a whole new life awaited him. He was convinced that he, along with a handful of other privileged people, now belonged to something exceptional and grand. Upon his arrival at one of the houses in the community, Thierry Huguenin was warmly welcomed by Joyce Lynn, the wife of Jody Mombro who took care of setting him up in his new quarters. Right away, the young man felt at home in this new environment. He was joined by about 20 other people, men and women, Swiss and Quebequa, who had come together by a shared love of nature and were completely convinced that they were doing something extraordinary by planting organic fruits and vegetables. The very next day, Thierry immediately immersed himself within the group. For the first time, he participated in the ceremonies which now had taken more flair and were inspired by the Templars and the Knights of the Round Table. Joseph Di Mambro then proclaimed himself as the Grand Master and brought a lot of theatricality to the ceremonies. The costumes held a special significance, drawing inspiration from medieval warriors. The gurus provided their followers with majestic black or white capes enhanced with a crucifix for a modest sum of 700 euros. Followers were even willing to pay to own them. By wearing a cape, an adherent sense of belonging was highlighted and they felt as if they had been elevated to the rank of the chosen. The followers were then subjected to versions which were skillfully orchestrated by the two leaders. One after another, they took part. In complete amazement in the resurrection of Christ, which occurred during one of the first nighttime gatherings that brought together about 60 people. In the atmosphere of fog and celestial music, the desire to create a stronger impression through the ceremonies, theatricality was now Jody Mambrio's focus and he wanted to push things even closer to their climax. He convinced his disciples that they were a part of an elite group, of something prestigious and that they were very lucky compared to the rest of humanity. And so from there, the downward spiral began. Their days were dedicated to personal coaching workshops, hypnosis sessions and mostly for doing mundane tasks. While the sect was willing to welcome new followers and offered them all the love and support that they needed, there had to be some reciprocity. This contribution consisted of working endlessly. Women worked in the kitchens while men did construction work, plumbing, gardening, and general upkeeping of the OST facilities. As instructed by the leaders, members of the community were only permitted to eat whatever they harvested in the orchards. And all food or cleaning supplies that came from the outside had to be thoroughly inspected, sterilized and washed at least twenty five times with water and bleach to avoid contact with bad energy. But that wasn't all. Members were also required to donate all of their property to DeMambro and Juray in cash or as bequests or real estate. It was to be done in service of working for the good of the community. Whenever Luxure traveled in business class to Montreal or bought a luxurious duplex in Geneva, it was for the good of the community. If Jody Mambria took his whole entourage out to eat at a fancy restaurant, it was good for the community. When he purchased a yacht to take cruises, once again, it was good for the community. The hold that the gurus held over their followers was so strong that they could have persuaded them to do anything. Luxure recruited during his conference, taking future adherents aside, pretending to be interested in them, asking them questions about their personal lives their professional and their backgrounds to determine their social class and, of course, how much cash they could potentially donate. As for Mambrio he also knew how to sniff out good prospects and family fortunes. A real inheritance hunter, some people gave him power of attorney or their bank accounts. Others bequeathed him their villa of an aging mother or father and Mambrio accepted everything far too willing to let himself be taken care of the upper crust of Geneva's capitalistic class who were ready to do anything to remain in his company. As for married couples, who came to the OST, he took care to separate them and organize new cosmic marriages based on vibrations. Oh, and this one is a better match than this one. Let's give them a cosmic wedding. And that is how many couples were torn apart and separated forever. Jody Mombro also benefited from this dark trade which allowed him to slowly acquire a harem of mistresses around him. Among them, he was particularly devoted to the young Dominique Bellaton, whom he impregnated with a sword in front of a live audience, who were convinced that they had just witnessed a divine conception. The sword that was used had an intricate system that allowed it to give the illusion of being possessed by something mystic and having supernatural powers. The reality, of course, was entirely something else. Dominique Bellatin became pregnant by the embryo in the old-fashioned, natural way. But for the OSD, reality far exceeded fiction. Little Emmanuel was born in 1982 and would be later declared the cosmic child. Consequently, she was forbidden to walk on the ground, or to be in direct contact with others, and to eat anything other than food that had been selected and previously sterilized several times. Most importantly. She was gradually adorned with a cosmic helmet to protect her from bad energy brought in from the outside by others. Taken away from her mother, Dominique Bellaton, at birth, little Emmanuel was entrusted to the care of Joycelyn, de Mamreou's wife and the only person authorized to touch, bathe and feed her. Jody Mambriu affectionately called her Dowdow. Beginning in 1990, the Order of the Solar Temple began to view death as the only means of escape. The only means of deliverance for the followers. For the first time, death by fire was evoked during one of their Friday night ceremonies. New followers were still joining the group at this time, including Edith Warnett and her younger son Patrick. Adherents who lived outside the cottage were given a password, COLD BUFFET, which they were required to use for every visit. Thematic parties and apparition parties were now being organized at any time. Just a simple phone call with the words COLD BUFFET was enough to get a follower to drop what they were doing and rush to the headquarters, suited with their 700-euro cape and their swode hidden in the trunk of their car. During these famous evenings, phenomena like levitation and apparitions took place, carefully orchestrated behind the scenes by technicians with the help of holograms and rigging. At the podium, in a whirlwind of smoke and cosmic music, Jody Mombro intoned a speech, By virtue of the power rested in me. I draw a circle of protection around this holy assembly and by the entity that lives within me, I call upon the angel of the hour and the planetary divinity. Thierry Huguenin, who was still a fervent disciple, became Jody Mambria's right hand and was forced to do manual labor as well as act as the latter's personal driver. Every day the former dental technician had to drive his mentor to Zurich in order to meet the master of the invisible in an alleged underground secret tunnel. Thierry would never get to see the location where these meetings occurred as he was always ordered to park far away. It was much later he discovered that Dimambrio was going to meet his mistress, not an underground tunnel but rather in a luxurious apartment. Although he suffered from increasingly acute lower back pain, Thierry was nevertheless sent with the couple from Quebec, the Le Pages, to do the finishing touches on the cottage that the sect had just purchased in Thierry. Why pay for labor when the followers could do it for free? But Thierry had begun to doubt the good faith of Dimambro and his inner circle. He used to drive them to jewelry and other luxury stores for their Christmas shopping. Several times a year, he dropped them off at the airport because they were traveling to Egypt, Italy, or the United States on luxurious excursions that were largely paid for by the generous donations while the followers themselves had to remain on site to plant organic vegetables, harvest them, redo the plumbing, repair the radiators, while the founders did all the shopping. Thierry was no fool. The sect had clearly been deceiving him and many others for years, and he pulled no punches while sharing his thoughts with his Quebec friend. Anyway, as soon as we are finished with the job here, Martine and I are heading back to Quebec. Continuing here is absolutely out of the question. Mark LePage confessed to Thierry. I don't plan to continue either, said Thierry. But when Jody Mamber learned that the couple intended to leave the sect and that additionally Martin LePage was pregnant, he was filled with rage. No baby must ever compete with the cosmic child. Yet despite the warnings, the LePages left for home and said their goodbyes to Thierry for the last time. A year later, he was shocked to discover that the LePages had been found dead in their home at Montreal from being stabbed several times. As for their child, Christophe Emmanuel, he had been murdered by a stake driven through his heart. Most likely the perpetrators of this abominable crime were Dominique Bellatin and Joel Egger, who had been sent to the LePage home by Luc After completing their sordid task, they hopped on the first plane to Geneva, convinced that they had eliminated the Antichrist in person. In 1993, despite pleas from Joyce Lynn de and others, Thierry Huguenin packed his bag and left the community forever. Others followed in his wake, increasingly weary of Luke Jure's stale rhetoric and Timambria's apocalyptical delusions. The order of the solar temple was now heading towards a downfall and the impact was felt not just in terms of their moral but also their financial situation. The money spent on first-class trips Shopping, meals, and starred restaurants had considerably depleted their coffers and there was no way to get the cash cows to return. Even worse, most of the outgoing members began demanding what was owed to them, harassing the two gurus with phone calls, pressing the pair to reimburse all the money that they had so boldly withdrawn for their personal expenses. Dimamro's back was to the wall. He promised to reimburse everyone. It was at that point when Luxure started to invoke the concept of the next departure, the infamous journey to the planet, serious in order to escape the world of human misery. The flashy and flamboyant ceremonies from earlier days had been replaced with smaller sessions with a maximum of five or six people, where each meeting focused solely on death and the next departure. On October 4, 1994, Thierry Huguenin went back to Salvan to demand the return of a large sum of money that he had entrusted to De Mambro a few years earlier. The guru graciously accepted to meet him at the cottage to pay back the young man's money. But when Thierry arrived at the location, he was overcome with a sense of apprehension. A strong smell of gasoline filled his nostrils. Jody Mombrio arrived at their meeting and told him that he had lost the keys to the cottage, but they could talk in the garage. Thierry was very angry and made it clear to Di Mambrio, who was very conciliatory, sheepish, and who had practically begged the young man to stay with the group forever. In one move, he tried to close the door of the garage. Panicked, Thierry Huguenin had a good sense and reflexes to be able to act at the right time and jump into his car and quickly revved at full speed. It didn't matter anymore about the money. He would never come back here. Other followers tried as hard as they could block his way, but it was already too late. The suspicion that Thierry Huguenin had proved to be justified. The very next day, October 5, 1994, the fire at the OSD cottages made the headline in the Swiss and Quebec media. The universe was created by fire and it is by fire that it must be destroyed. This statement ended the video cassette of the OSD massacre. After the death of the two leaders, a few former members, still feeling nostalgic, continued to meet with one another, including Christiane Bonnet who was certain that she had heard a posthumous message from Jodi Mambro in her sleep. She managed to convince 15 other former disciples to follow her into the woods in Vercourse at night on December 15 and 16, 1995, for a second and final journey. Their burnt and bullet-riddled bodies were found by the Grenoble police a few days later. Was this murder or mass suicide? Even today, it remains a complete mystery. Two years later, in St. Casimir, a small township outside of Montreal, five more bodies, three of whom were French, were discovered burnt and arranged in a semicircle. This would be the final incident related to the order of the Solar Temple. In France, a mysterious name by the name Michel Tabacnik, who was a former medium and conductor of a Philharmonic Orchestra, But more importantly, an ardent member of the OST from the very beginning was suspected of helping the gurus organize the massacres and of being behind the special effects that took place during the ceremonies. Furthermore, his name appeared several times on the sect's financial documents, particularly on the invoices for tailoring his cape and his vestment, and also on more controversial legal documents that sought to acquire real estate in Geneva and Montreal. In the face of these accusations, Michel Tabachnik continued to proclaim his innocence. In 1998, he was sentenced by the trial court in Grenoble for partaking in criminal association and organized crime. He was finally cleared and released in December 2006 after almost six years behind bars. Ever since the terrible events of 1994, Thierry Huguenin remained in Geneva living a recluse and unable to deal with the outside world after almost 15 years spent within the sect. He owes his rebirth to a novel titled The Fifty-Fourth, in reference to the number of the last of the Templars that the sect would have assigned before the journey. I consider myself to be a miracle. If I speak today, it is to bring justice to the others, everyone, all my friends that I loved so much, for them and for all the innocent people who perished because of this maglomania of two men. I have no right to remain silent, recounted Huguenin on the brink of tears and emotionally fragile as a result of this experience. It would take him more than five years to return to normal life because according to him, even if we choose to live a sect of our own free will, it continues to live within us for a long time afterward. It is an invisible prison. I'm still afraid to sit down in a coffee shop, afraid to go speak to the authorities, do my shopping, to speak to people for fear that they'll ask me about my past. Because really, what could I even tell them? I'm quite simply ashamed about what they did to me. As for Elaine Warnet, the son and the brother of the victims in Vercourse, his anger has never subsided, nor has he given up. For many years now, he has continued his fight to bring the truth to the light with other anti-sectarian associations. For Warnet, the massacre in Salvin, Mornhide, Jerry, and Vercors were in reality murders made to look like mass suicide and not the other way around. With at least 74 victims, the Order of the Solar Temple has been the sect that was responsible for the most human damage, spread out of two continents. In Switzerland and Canada, the lawsuit have finally been dropped because there is no one left to convict after the death of Joseph de Mambro and Luxuré. While many former followers have chosen to step out of the shadow and testify in order to exercise some of this horror, others have preferred to remain anonymous, nostalgic for their leaders, or fearful that the wrath of the Templars will descend upon them and curse them forever. Nevertheless, there might still be a small group somewhere who continue to wait for their next journey to the planet Sirius. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.